Hi, everyone. I'm very happy to be here with Kelly Kaur. This is a Writers Guild of Alberta interview series sponsored by Read Alberta. And this is a new experience for me. Um, normally, when I am talking with another author, I have the opportunity to read their work in advance and read everything they've ever written and then um, really formulate some good questions. But this was a, a kind of a, a last minute request and I think it's gonna be fun, um, but we are two authors who are complete strangers to one another, but I think we're gonna have a lot to talk about. So let me just introduce Kelly to begin with. Kelly's novel, Letters to Singapore was published by Stonehouse Publishing May 1st, so recently, 2022. Her poems and works have been published internationally and nominated for numerous prizes. Her works are on the Lunar Codex project. Her poem, A Singaporean's Love Affair, is going to the moon on the Nova mission, on the Nova time capsule in 2022, and Letters to Singapore will also be going to the moon on the Griffin mission on the Polaris time capsule in 2023 and 2024. And later on, I'm gonna ask you all about that moon stuff, Kelly. So nice to meet you, Kelly. Hello, thank you very much. And this is a wonderful opportunity. Thank you, Writers Guild and Read Alberta. It's a pleasure meeting you. I've heard about you, Farzana. So to have this opportunity to meet you virtually in person would have been more wonderful. Huh? But this is as good as it gets. So let me let me have an opportunity to introduce you to the audience. Farzana Doctor is a Toronto-based author, activist, and a registered social worker psychotherapist. She has published four critically acclaimed novels, including seven, which Miss Magazine described as fully feminist and ambitiously bold and was shortlisted for the Trillium and Evergreen Awards. Her new poetry collection, You Still Look the Same, which Quill and Choir has called a powerful and necessary collection that breaks silence, silences, was just released in May, 2022. That's around the same time as my book as well. So this is- The exact same day. <laughs> first, all right, this is synchronicity then. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm lucky enough to be part of this whole thing just because my publisher is Freehand Press and um, they're based in Calgary. And so I'm very pleased, even though I'm sitting here in Toronto right now. Yeah. Um, okay. So one of the themes that we were going to talk about was the first novel, because the first novel, I think, is a kind of different project than any subsequent novel, I think. Um, so let me ask you a first question, um, and then I'll get you to uh, read if you're interested a little bit. So um, there's this thing that happens with first novels, I think, where um, novels really, the novelists will mine from their own lives quite a lot. And, you know, that's because we're told, write what you know, maybe, or maybe we just have so much to process from a lifetime of, you know, experience. And I know for me with my first novel, um, while I fictionalized lots of things, I was mining from um, my own life. I was mining, I was, I was keeping settings almost exactly as they were. I was afraid to make some mistakes maybe as well. And I was choosing to, to keep things manageable by having a lot from my own life. So I wanted to ask you, um, how much did you mine from your own life? And what did you feel like you most wanted to fictionalize? That is a great question because that's one I definitely struggled with. As a first time writer, writing a novel and not really knowing what to do. It's, it's funny because as a university lecturer, I taught novels as a university student. I, I have my degrees in English. So I always said, when I'm going to write my novel, I know what to do. And then the time came and I said, I, I'm clueless. Where do I begin? Therefore, I set my novel, Letters to Singapore, in the time frame that I was familiar with. And that became a sense of comfort because, as you said, I know everything. I didn't have to do research. 
I didn't have to lie too much and I didn't have to make things up. Calgary was there, the University of Calgary was there. I knew the places, I knew the spaces, I knew the smell, the taste, the feelings. So that became very useful when I started figuring out what to do about the content. Then I felt really concerned because I thought, I don't want them to think this is my life. This is not my mother, my sister, my friends. These are stories that I've crafted, created, and, and, and you know, weaved into something fashionable that I can use. So because I was so new, I, I didn't know how to play the game. And I kept putting things in and I kept taking them out until my editor said to me, you know, just write, just, just, just be comfortable. You have to put the scene in. And I'm like, no, I don't want to. And she said, you have to, you have to have some sex scenes. And I'm like, no, what if they think it's me? And, and so once I became comfortable with that, it became the idea that I've taught and read about that fiction is the possibility of creation of what is real, unreal, possible and plausible. And so I became more comfortable with that. And I have to say, after writing this first novel, I think the next one, I'll become even more comfortable with the notion of what creative writing is all about. You know, I have to say, even um, with the third and fourth novel, you know, I, I worried so much about, do people think this is me? Because one of the things that happens, I think, often with marginalized writers, racialized writers, is that people 100% assume, oh, you know, this is autobiography, even though it's clearly stated to be fiction. So, um, you know, as I was reading, um, I've, I've read up to page 40, and I was so interested in well, you know, I know she's probably mining from her own life. This one review says she probably is. Um, but um, I know that a lot of it has to be fiction. I know this is not her mother. This is not her father. This is not her. This is like um, a character she's created that may have a few similarities to her own life. So I, I work really hard to separate the author from the characters because I want people to do that for me in my writing. <laughs> And how do you do that in your writing? How do you separate? Yeah, do you know, I think um, it's hard, right? Because it, it's all flowing through our own minds, our conscious minds, our unconscious minds. It's just all flowing. And so I think every character is a little bit of us, like they have to be. Um, but one way to do it, I think, is I start to think about the characters as friends, as um my own imaginary friends. Right. <laughs> and so they they end up forming complete worlds and lives of their own. And so I can give them sex lives and I can, you know, give them hardships or whatever obstacles. I can make them annoying. Um, but yeah, I and I think just after all this time, I've just been like, yeah, people are gonna think it's me. Do and people who know you insist it's you? Um, some people who know some of my inner world will be like, I think I recognize that one little bit, but then they'll only say it was that one little bit. So they don't yeah. assume I'm the character, but they will, yeah. they'll, they'll find little pieces. With my first novel, um, two of my friends said, you were basing those two on us, right? And I was oh. like, a little bit, but also not. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> Yeah, I find it interesting, the whole idea of reader response theory, that once I write my book, you, the reader, take whatever meaning you want, and you create your own reality. So I've had people insist that this is true, or this is what happened, or I, I, I definitely made this or did not make it up. And it fascinates me because I'm arguing with them about what is real and not real. And now I just grin and, and shake my head and said, it's your story now, right? Yeah. Make it what you want. And yeah. uh, everyone, I, I'm sure you find that, that every single person finds one nugget in the book that they can relate to so well. Yes. And that's what I find so wonderful that when I wrote the book, I didn't say I'm going to talk about racism, sexism, a woman of color. I just wrote stories. And in writing the stories, that's where life unfolds. Is that what you found for yourself as well? 
Well, yeah, because the, the characters do take, you know, um, lives of their own. And so you start to imagine all kinds of things happening that you haven't experienced yourself. Um, or maybe maybe you've heard about the experience from someone else and then you know you you turn it into something much bigger much more exuberant much more interesting cuz normal life is kind of dull i think um and i and i saw that you really did that like when i, I when i read the scenes for example of when she gets um dragged out by um the guy in her german class <laughs> To the bar and I was just and and it's so well described right and I, I I know that I've been in that kind of bar with the sticky floor too and feeling lost and not knowing how to behave and and I think you 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 presented what was universal um you know because you don't even have to be a new immigrant uh yeah. to feel completely like lost and nobody on a dance floor right yeah, I think my favorite theme has always been the theme of the insider and outsider. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, that falls into place as an immigrant, as a woman, as uh, who we want to love, who we want to be with. We're always trying to find that center. And just something as simple as you say is going to the bar, trying to know what the politics of existence is at that point. And that happens in every country. If, if one went to India or Singapore and you want to hug everyone, that's not something you should or could do. So that's where you're like, what's the right thing to do? And, and that's, that's funny. That's funny in its sadness when we try to fit in. Yes. And even how you described how a little thing, important little thing, like you don't know which way to look when you're crossing a street and just how much mental energy that takes. Um, so I, I loved all of that. And let me ask you another question before I get you to read. Um, so you, you're writing in, um, am I gonna say this right? The epistolary form, the, the letter writing form. Yes. How did you decide for your character, Simran, how, how did you decide which family members and which friends were going to fill out the story? It was a happy accident. I was accepted into an immigrant writing program through Writers Guild of Alberta and Alexandra's Writers Center. And my mentor was Aretha Van Herk. And I was so excited and scared and terrified. And I really didn't have any idea what I was going to do. The night before the interview, I brainstormed with my daughter and I said, what about letters? And she said, yeah, sounds good. So I started throwing that idea out everywhere. And then finally, Aretha said, well, you know, it's time to send the pages. And I wrote the first letter. I said, okay, obviously I'm going to write what I know. And once I wrote Simran, then I had to figure out clearly mommy would be a wonderful person to send it to. And then her sister. And then I had to come up with two friends. And I came up with a Chinese friend, Amy, and a South Indian friend, Anita, to reflect the multicultural background of Singapore. And of course, I wanted to write more, but I realized I had to stop somewhere. I wanted to put in a Malay girl as well, but it didn't fit in the story too well because I really didn't know what I was doing at that point. So I just started writing and then it became natural that they all sent the letters back to Simran. So Simran was the main protagonist and, and the way of letting the story flow which I didn't even know how to do. So as I wrote the letters and they fell into place, and now that I look at them, I think I love this idea of letters. I'm gonna start a franchise, letters to my ex-boyfriends, letters to my children, you know, just keep writing letters because in a way, once you know how to craft them, they do tell the inner secrets of people that we don't have access to because letters, as uh, you know, the way that people confess everything. So yeah. I, I really started enjoying the process very much. Yes, and and Simran is a little different with each person she's writing to. Her, she's more flippant or more formal. 
Um, yes. You get a lot of backstory just through the way it's so conversational. Do you want to do you want to read for a few minutes so we sure. feel get a feeling for it? Yeah, I'll read part one and then maybe part two later. And I would like to read the part about where she goes. Uh, she meets Marlon. So Simran writes to the five people, and this one is to her sister, 10th October, 1985. She meets Marlon in her German class, and he unexpectedly shows up on her residence floor, Kananaskis. And he says, what are you doing here? I said, he said, let's study for a German test on Monday. What? Strange man. But I was flattered. No papa to kill this boy who just showed up, right? I went to my room down the hallway to get my German books and I came out and we started studying on the couches. Our session lasted minutes. We only had a chance to practice we gates. Ich bin Sim, when he looked at his watch, jumped up and said, forget German, let's go to a bar. What? Hurry. I was confused. That's the problem. In Singapore, it would not be a possibility to go anywhere late at night with any man. Papa would kill me first, then the boy. What were the rules here? I stared at him. Where are we going? I asked nervously. Electric Avenue, he mumbled. 11th Avenue. It could have been Timbuktu. I had no idea about anything and anywhere in Calgary. And it was past 9 p.m., late, dark, and cold. I clenched my hands and smiled awkwardly. We jumped off the bus. I apprehensively followed Marlon when he jumped off the bus and walked to an unfamiliar destination. The sign read, Coconut Joe's. And we waited outside the bar for a long time in the freezing night to get in. Are these people mad, standing in line in the cold? All new for me. What bar could I even go to in Singapore this late at night? The line shuffled forward and we finally got inside the dimly lit bar. Marlon didn't say much to me. He talked to everyone else in the line walking past. I shuffled and dug my hands into my coat pockets to stay warm and calm. Marlon didn't look that cute anymore. Yes, that's wonderful. Yeah. And it's also such a commentary on, um, well, 1985's Cal Calgary culture, but also that happens in Toronto as well, where people are standing out in the cold yes. to get into a bar and like, wow, yeah. It's still shocking. And uh, for you, what about your first novel? Tell me about that. Yeah, so my first novel is um, Stealing Nasreen. Uh, it came out in 2007 by um, a small feminist press in Toronto called Inana Publications. And um, so how, how this all came about for me was I, um, I went through a terrible breakup and was looking for um, a, some way to pass the time. You know how that is when suddenly you've got swaths of time. And so I first took a hip hop dance class and it was really um, bad for me because I'm not that coordinated. And then I started looking at some of the writing courses at University of Toronto. I had always done a little bit of writing all my life. Like I had written poetry since I was very young. I'd written plays. I've been part of um, a, a collective that a theater collective. I've been part of a video collective. So I had I had arts kind of around me, but um, I ended up taking this course called writing the novel, and I ended up writing the first chapter of stealing the screen in that class or the first draft. Let's be honest, the first draft of the first chapter, um, and then it was just this very um, addictive kind of experience where I just wanted to keep going. And I uh, shortly after joined um, a, a women of color writing group, and they helped me quite a lot with keeping up my um, my energy to keep writing. 
And at that time, I was in a very, very full-time social work job. I'm a social work therapist in the afternoons. So, but at that time, it was like more than full-time. And so I would find these little bits of time that the teacher in that course, Ray Robertson, talked about how during one busy period in his life, he found three 45-minute spots a week to write. And so I, I took that very literally, and I did that. And it took me four years to write this novel. And then another few years to get it published because I was so unfamiliar with that process. I didn't have a writer's community at all. And um, so then it finally got published. I was still like, what do I do next? How do I promote this? Um, how do I be a, an author in the world? I had not really thought any of that through. It was not really a long term goal of mine. Um, I just knew that I was writing this thing, but I didn't think about what would come next and next and next. You know how it starts to unfold and suddenly you're doing events like this, right? Yes. I yes. hadn't thought about any of that. Um, so um, yeah, so Stealing Nasreen is this story of um, a doomed love triangle of sorts. Um, it takes place in the early 2000s. So uh, pre-cell phones. I think, you know, your your book also takes place at a time when there's, there's it's a different kind of communication because we don't have cell phones. Yeah. Um, and I think that, I think that's good. Um, and so maybe I'll read, um, I'll read a couple of minutes of this. And then later on, I'll switch over to talking about the, the last book of mine, which is the poetry collection, because that's published by um, Freehand in, in Calgary. So Yes, definitely. And I'd like to know how you came up with this idea. Okay, so I'll just um, read uh, the, from one of the characters' perspectives. So um, Shafik is um, a janitor at a big mental health hospital. Mm. Shafik scratches the stubble on his chin and pushes his cleaning cart sluggishly down the long hallway. It is just 7 p.m., only the beginning of his shift. He rounds a corner and then stops for a moment to retrieve a Walkman from his bag. He slips the earphones over his head and allows the greatest hits of Bollywood too to saturate the silence around him. He listens for his favorite song, number two, side A, Dum Maro Dum. Ah, here it is. He closes his eyes, imagining the black-haired, fair-skinned songstress trilling out her high-pitched longing. He sways to the tune, taking his cleaning cart as his dance partner. He opens his eyes and once again sees the bland institutional walls around him. He hates working the night shift. He is bitter that he is working in darkness and sleeping through the afternoon sun. He misses the world's regular rhythms. Right now, he should be sitting at home with his family, eating his dal and rice, watching who wants to be a millionaire. Somewhere deep in his heart, he believes this must be a sacrilege of some kind, a crime against nature even. He empties the garbage bin in the vice president's office. Stuck to the bottom are the two halves of a woman's photograph. Shafik holds the pieces together, admiring the puzzle she makes. He pockets the photo and considers its possibilities. Why did the torn up woman end up in the vice president's garbage? Carrying on with his cleaning, he imagines love affairs as he scrubs toilets, conflicts and ruined marriages while mopping floors and heartbreaking betrayals when emptying garbage cans. This is the kind of drama he catches on Maury at 3.30. He wonders, not for the first time, if his thinking has become more melodramatic since moving to Canada. Maybe I'll just stop there. <laughs> vivid, vivid. I can, I can see it, feel it. And of course, dal and <laughs> dancing and, and music. I wanted to ask you, what do you think BIPOC writers should do, have to do? Do we have to do anything? What is our role? Yeah, I don't think we should have to do anything. Just like, you know, white people shouldn't have to do anything necessarily. However, I think as human beings, all of us together, um, it's our role as artists to try, to try to disrupt the status quo, right. uh, to not reinforce you know, all the oppression to see if we can imagine possibilities beyond, beyond our current reality. I think that's for everybody. 
all, all of us. Um, and there's greater pressure, I think, on marginalized artists and writers to do that, unfortunately. What about you? What's your answer to that question? Well, same thing. I, I stopped writing for 20 years because I had my pieces rejected. They were rejected in Singapore. They, they weren't ready for literature. They were rejected in Canada because it didn't fit in who wanted to hear about arranged marriages and, and dal and roti and, and Indian names. So I gave up. I also gave up because I had to live life and that unfolded. Then during COVID, I call it my COVID bounty. During 2020 to 2022, I thought, you know, I'm stuck at home. I'm going to write in between grading my university essays. As you said, the 10, 20 minutes stolen time. And I just started sending it all around the world. And what I couldn't do in 20 years, in two years, I had over 50 poems and fiction and nonfiction published. And I thought, well, what's the difference? I wrote a story over 20 years ago and three of them got published recently. And is it because we are now more open and more ready and, and realizing that voices have been muted and people have been made invisible for so long? And I believe like you that writing should be writing. We, we should write no matter where we are from because all our stories have powerful images and messages that are the same, right? Love is love, death is death, pain is pain. No matter where you are from the world, we can feel those emotions. So when you were reading your piece, I felt that loneliness. I felt that feeling of where am I? What am I doing here? Cleaning toilets. So that part is what connects us and race, color, country should not matter. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, where, where I wish that more people would infuse a bit more of the social justice in their writing is probably more like less from the marginalized. I think the marginalized writers do it anyway. We just do it because we're talking about these, these muted um, experiences, but I do wish that more white writers would do it. I wish they would think really clearly about how you know, how diverse are their characters? How diverse are these experiences? Right. What are the ways they might be reinforcing really, you know, harmful things? That's, and, and are, they, are they helping other writers to, um, to, to, to take a stage? Um, that, that's where I would say, that's, that's where they need to work a little bit harder. This yeah. is a difficult publishing uh, world. Um, it's one in which things are changing. Things are definitely changing, but maybe not fast enough. That's true. I mean, I grew up on Shakespeare and Jane Austen and yeah. Dickens, and that was not my world. The, yeah. I love the literature. I, I definitely will continue reading that. But when I read Anita Desai, mm -hmm. who wrote about Indian women, my, my eyes just bugged up and I thought, I know this woman, that's, that's like my auntie. And, and these are characters that reflect who I am. And I was shocked to realize that in schools and universities, how little of that is put into the syllabus. And when it is, it's a special course as opposed to just mainstream that any of us can pick up, right? And I think that's the part where we become, we become put in compartments as opposed to we are all just writers. Yes. Let, let me ask you some more about um, COVID pandemic writing because um, people have had such a variety of experience with, you know, I've heard people say, and I, I've, I've definitely had trouble sitting still and reading. I've, I've managed to read more through audiobooks than ever before. Um, so, but my writing has been pretty good during this time. So let me just ask you, what, what do you think it was? Because uh, you were still busy, you were still working. What was it that helped you to sit down and write so much more? I think I gained courage when I penned my novel and it was accepted and it was going to be published. It gave me the courage and confidence to keep trying and to see rejection as simply a way of pushing forward and opening up the landscape and said, you know what, if, if Singapore, Canada, 
have rejected some of my pieces. Let me try the world. And then next thing you know, it was Berlin and Prague and United Kingdom and Malaysia and Australia. And that's when I realized that the world is my oyster, that I can send things in. And as I kept sending them in during, you know, it was very difficult. I, I, all my courses were now online. I had to teach online at Mount Royal University and Athabasca University. And I also got so tired of reading those essays. I needed a break. So when I took my 10 minute break, all right, maybe one hour break between the markings, I would just put in submissions, poetry submissions for July, 2021. And I would look for all the calls and just send it in. I would take my, I didn't have much time. I had my 10, 15 minutes. I would write my poems. I would write whatever I could come back to it. And it was fun. It was wonderful. And it just gave me the confidence. And it's funny because rejection hurts, right? Rejection sucks. And I always wonder what is it that makes people, some people go to the top and some not, because I've read all the books and poems and most of them are quite wonderful. What do you think? In terms of how about rejection? Yeah. Well, how you did know, you deal with rejection, if any? I, you know, I have less difficulty with rejection than I have difficulty with um, the silence, the waiting. I find that in the publishing industry, sometimes you're waiting so long to hear back. Yes. Um, I One of the reasons why I really value having an agent is that she's receiving the rejection first, right? But it's still, we're still waiting. We're waiting together. So that's what I find that how slow everything is, right? Like you could have written a novel, um, you know, a couple of years ago, but you might still be waiting for it to be published, right? And by the time it does get published, you're like, wow, that was such a long time ago that I was processing those things, you know, and thinking about those things and passionate about those things. So that's that's the thing I find hard. For me, I, you know, I, the, the privileged position that I'm in today after writing five books is that um, I don't feel so horrible about the rejection as I did with the first book. I mean, there was a lot of rejection with Stealing Nasreen and it took years, it really took years. Wow. Um, and I think part of it was that I, you know, still needing some practice in editing <laughs> and I wasn't, I didn't yet know how to be strategic around, um, you know, how to make connections and network. And I didn't, I didn't have any of that. So it was really tough in the beginning. It still stings today, but it's a little less difficult today because I know, I know that somewhere um, someone will publish the work. Sometimes I'm looking for things that um, I'm not able to access. Like I would really like, for example, um, I've, I've got a YA novel that is finished. I just completed another revision of it uh, yesterday. And I really see this as um, uh, a novel that should also have a TV show attached to it. That's what I see. Yes. So it's like, how, how, how to do that? So, so, so it's, it's aiming for different things and still facing rejection in those kinds of arenas, but the arenas have started to shift in, in different ways. When it was stealing the screen, I was just looking for my first tiny publisher. Would anyone just print this book? Yes. Uh, and that, that's where I was facing rejection. And now I'm looking for maybe bigger arenas and, wow. and facing rejection and figuring out how, how do I be more strategic? How do I make these things work? So I think, I think that's, we grow, right? In, in any field that we're in, we're, we, we just grow and we set our sights a little higher and, and the rejection is, is always there. Yeah. yeah. I have yeah. a question. So you have five, four novels, your poetry collection, and now your YA. How did you move from one to the other? Intentional, accidental? What was, what yeah. happened? Pretty intentionally. Um, I like, I like stretching um, as a writer. And um, so when I, when I was 
putting together the poetry collection. I felt very much like a beginner, although I'd been writing poetry my whole life. There is this like different skill set around editing poetry and then also creating a flow and a structure. Um, so that that was about being you know, stretching my skills. The YA is also about stretching my skills, wow. you know, trying to stay in the mindset of a 16 year old when I'm 51, you know, so it's like, you know, it's, it's about trying to find um, new areas of learning. I'm working, I think, on a memoir right now. And I also have the self-help manual that is sitting with my wow. agent. So I have been intentionally trying to get out of um, just one genre. I'll come back to an, another novel, uh, an adult um, literary fiction novel, because that is my favorite still. Right. I'll come back to it. But I have been trying to like just put my fingers in different pots. How, how about you? So you've talked about different forms as, as well. How do you decide what to do? I decided I was going to explore everything. And the poems I've had some published and very delighted that they've landed at the International Human Rights Art Festival in New York, in North Dakota. And I realized that I had a message to share. I like talking about women, women's rights, race, racism, and it became a wonderful way of saying it in not a novel, obviously. And I, I'm enjoying it and I'm learning how to write and I want to learn more. So that's where the stretching is going to continue. Nonfiction, I like that as well. And I was in Toastmasters for many years and made it to the international uh, speech contest, 100 out of from around the world. And I thought I can write, it's nonfiction. And so then I decided to experiment with that. And I've had a few published as well. And so I've been trying everything. I want to write a play. I want to write. I don't know if I can write YA, but that's intriguing, right? And I think it will take time and research. But that's where the excitement is. I want to write one more novel, one more short story collection. And I wish I, wish I won that $60 million so I can stay at home and do that. And it's, it's challenging because life, you know, life goes on and, and stealing those moments to write is difficult. But I think trying all the different types of writing style and having been published in many of the arenas is something that gives me an opportunity then to develop them more. Mm -hmm. That's you great. Know. I have a I, question for you. What, okay. you have your five babies, which is your favorite secret one. Which oh, is your favorite book? I, I don't know. It's it's like, you know, trying to pick which child you like. Um, they're all different, right? Like, right. It, in a sense, you know, stealing Nasreen, the baby, um, I feel like it's so precious. At the same time, I'm like, oh, gosh, I would really edit that differently. Yes. Um, so, you know, I would say of the novels, probably um, my last novel, Seven, is my... Um, my favorite, just in terms of, I feel like uh, my skills developed, you know, each, each novel, yeah. you just keep developing your skills. Um, and that, that novel was also um, had a, had a social justice kind of angle to it. That was really important to me. I'm really proud of this poetry collection because I've worked really hard at editing it and finally came up with a structure that I, um, I'm very happy with. So, so I don't know, but you know, I also like novel two and novel three. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know you said something interesting where you said when you go back and look at novel one, you would edit it so differently. And I know I have those feelings too. And I go, I, I said that, why, why did I put that word in? And maybe I should put one more letter. This is what I should have done. And my daughter always says to me, let it go. You got published, you know, you, you can only edit for so long. True, it's true. It's unfortunately true. Um, would you like to read uh, another section? Um, yes. Yeah. I will continue the part where they are inside the bar and Marlon didn't look that cute anymore. So I'll continue. 
Inside, the bar was crowded, noisy, reeked of smoke and alcohol. I pushed my way in blindly. I noticed everyone was white and I felt out of place. I peered around in the dimness and didn't know what to do or where to go. You know me. The only bar I've been to in Singapore was the Raffles Bar. And that was a lounge. I stood in the middle of a crowd of intoxicated dancing people and looked to Marlon to guide me. Marlon whispered in my ear, I'll be back. Enjoy yourself. What? Hey, I tried to grab his arm, but the bastard left like a slippery snake. My confused mind ran in circles. Was this what a Canadian date was? I had zero experience to bank on. Stranded in the bar alone, I snapped my fingers to the beat, pretending to fit in. I pushed my way to the bar, ordered a glass of Coca-Cola, and stood awkwardly in the corner, smiling like an idiot, looking at the filthy floor, feeling petrified. Then I heard a voice and glanced up. A young boy who looked 12, but he must have been 18 to get into the bar, came up to me and said, Oh, you're so beautiful. What's your name? Dim. Nim. Bim. Sim. Sim. Nice to meet you, Sim. There I was, Amrit, already on my second date, since my first date had apparently dumped me. The skinny, drunk, pimply boy was trying to pick me up. He babbled hiccuped and swayed back and forth, two bottles of beer in each hand. Strangely, I relaxed. Maybe it wasn't that bad. I was grateful for him because that Marlon was nowhere to be seen. This boy could be my knight in shining armor. His name was Mark. He leaned into me, repeating, you're so beautiful, baby. Singapore? Where is that? China? You don't look Chinese. I sighed. I didn't say much because it was loud and noisy. I closed my eyes, took a deep breath, opened my eyes. I smiled at everything, Mark said. He grabbed my arm and pulled me to the post-stage-sized dance floor. He screamed the lyrics to the song and pointed me to me to emphasize words like love or baby. Damn, I was here. What else could I do but to point back and scream, love, baby, at Mark while he jumped up and down like a drunken kangaroo. My first Calgary bar. Finally, here I was. <laughs> Such a fun scene. Yeah. And, you know, uh, one of the things I loved about the character was like the, the simultaneous like skepticism, but naivete at the same time, right? Like, cause we're all, we're all a little bit of, you know, those, those polarities. So she's, she's like, who is this guy? But all right, I'm on the dance floor. Right, right. And I, I think it's, it's challenging for many people, if not immigrants, if not women who are not used to situations like that to try to fit in. And then it becomes a politics of race and color and power and belonging and just trying to understand how to behave, right? And, and for someone from a background where it's so traditional and controlled, it is such a scary adventure to just fit in, to, to belong, to learn. And then there's all of these um, experiences with men, right, that are you know, all the way from like quite seedy to that kind of half innocent kooky right. scene, right? Um, so, so also kind of how, how do you operate as a woman of color, you know, in this new place? And I loved, <laughs> I'm on my second date now. <laughs> yes, that's true. That's true. Tell me about your poems now. Let's, let's have a few of you, of you reading some of them. Okay, sure. So um, this is, you still look the same. Look at my 100 tabs. Um, <laughs> so um, 
this this is a poetry collection that is um, divided up into four four different sections, and each section begins with a tongue in cheek therapy homework question that is answered in a haiku. Um, and I love I love um, kind of making fun of therapy and therapy language um, because I am a therapist. So let me just read a few poems. Um, and, and each section kind of hints at what the themes are going to be. So I'll, I'll read from the first one. So the first one is one, therapy homework. Describe your world ending in as few words as possible. And this is the haiku answer. One day we left home, forgot to lock the door. Terrible mistake. <laughs> <laughs> I know that feeling, lock the door. <laughs> okay. So let's see, what should I read here? I'm gonna read um, one of the, the breakup uh, poems. This is called Lost in the Breakup. One blue pillowcase, part of a set. I've searched every musty closet. Where are all the good knives? I guess they were yours. Sorry, I took them for granted. That old bike pump, gone. It was five, no six, months of hard pedaling before, before I got a new one. A loaf pan, probably mine. After a dozen years, there's no way to know. But cello, I've stopped baking. Potholders gifted to us, charred from being left on a crimson burner the day you moved out. The entire top floor of our house disappeared. I still hear your footsteps overhead. And I'll skip ahead to, this is the second section. Two, therapy homework. Describe the process of middle age self-searching in as few words as possible. This is the haiku answer. One airline ticket, two years of online dating, but what did you find? And because you are also South Asian, I'm gonna read you one that I think you might appreciate a lot. Have you, um, so, so you're from Singapore, but your mom is from India. Have you gone back to India at all? I've never been to India, so sadly. Okay. Yeah. So for me, this is very much a diasporic poem of going back to India and mm. just trying to figure shit out. Yes and how hard it is. And this yeah. idea of you don't belong there, you don't belong here. This is called How to Get Wi-Fi at Jamia Millia in 14 Easy Steps. And Jamia Millia is a university in Delhi where I was um, doing a, a one week writer in residency. Wow. <laughs> how to get Wi-Fi at Jamia Millia in 14 Easy Steps. One, go to the first office where a man with a handlebar mustache will direct you to a second with a green tie and the correct application form. Two, affix a current passport photo. Write your father's name on line four. Remember your temporary cell number. Three, cross muddy campus field, admire water lilies and garden pond, smile at young women reading Premchand in weak Delhi sunshine. Four, drink chai with the department head whose thick hair reminds you of a Bollywood star, his name, tip of tongue, eluding you. Five, carry his signature to the second office, supplicate to green Tai, who will shake his head, point to the next desk over. Six, hold your tongue when a man with a shiny pate says, a three-line paragraph, not previously requested, is now required. Seven, speed dial the department head, seek administrative rescue. Eight, prepare yourself when Baldev remains resolute. That's, that's um, something that would be hard to see, but it's regards to the guy with the bald. <laughs> prepare yourself when Baldev remains resolute and even department head Shah Rukh Khan, yes, that's it, is not exempt to procedure and must phone department head number two to plead your case. Nine, 
Department head number two will greet you with a slight bow, pressed palms, tranced out smile, and will sing song the necessity of this and that policy. Sigh into his calm face, nod and gather your things. 10. When you stand, he'll insist that you mustn't traverse the sodden campus. Rather, like the queen, he'll press a red button, summon a thinner, older, browner man. 11. He will jog on your behalf, deliver wilting page to department head Shah Rukh Khan, while department head Deepak Chopra pontificates on immigration trends that made you a stranger to his country. 12. When jogger uncle returns with the completed document, don't high five him. Instead, smile red faced while Deepak ushers you out of his office back to where you started two hours one cup of chai, five desks, many men ago. 13. Although no less indifferent, mustache guy will tap permission into his keyboard. 14. Exhale and try not to grumble like a foreigner. <laughs> oh my goodness. It reminds me of going to the bank in Singapore. <laughs> I yeah. felt that, you know, it's like, 14 steps indeed, and then square zero. Yes. I love that. I love that. And, and I think the poems you wrote were based on life in your 40s, correct? That's right. Yeah, it was uh, my complicated decade. <laughs> I'd gone through a major breakup. I um, explored some new trauma. I was online dating. I fell in love again, all while dealing with perimenopause. Wow. So, How does it feel to, to put that personal life in a book? Because the fiction, people guess. But this one, they're like, yeah, that's you. And you're like, yes, it's me. How did it feel? Or what did you think about that? Yeah, I think it was the practice of the four novels and getting a little bit more immune to how to like how to cope with that stuff. So I just started trusting my voice over time, you know, and the readers helped the, you know, the positive validation, it all helps right with time. And so by the time I got to this, I was like, it's okay. It's okay if they know that it is me. And and I always said, you know, to, to everyone who asked, like they were seeds from real life. And then of course, you know, you make it more fun, you make it more interesting, you make it more deep. Um, in some cases, the poems are written from like other points of view as well, like imagined points of view. So I've done a, a mix of things, but I'm, I'm less, less uh, fraught about yeah. know my life. That's true. So when you write your memoir, would this then carry over to that and give us more details? I think so. I think that, you know, I'll, I'll have to see, you know, I'm I, the thing that's making me a little antsy about the memoir is that I'm processing stuff that I'm like dealing with now. So I might have to wait five years. Right, right. Just have a bit more distance. So we'll, we'll see what, you know, I think, I think it's good when things aren't too raw. Um, right, right. Yeah. It's so, nice to share and hard to share. Yeah. So let, let me ask you um, a couple questions as well. I have to get to the moon question. I will get to that. Sure. Everyone wants to know about this moon business. But um, let me ask you, what would you say have been the biggest obstacles um, and opportunities that have come so far from writing this first novel? Biggest obstacles? Biggest obstacles and opportunities that you've noticed. Ah, okay. Opportunities have been intriguing, and this is definitely one of them. This opportunity to talk to you and and learn and and find out. So that is amazing and wonderful, and also being on social media and having people from around the world encourage me and support me. When I say I've been published in an anthology in Singapore, I have all my friends saying, yes, wonderful, go for it. And it's that encouragement that keeps me wanting to go 
to keep on going. And friends who write to me and say, I've got a secret memoir. I've got a book. I want to do this. Can you help me? And with my limited knowledge and information, helping them as much as I can. So those opportunities come and go. And to have a chance to be on CBC and CKUA and on, in the newspaper in 75 uh, uh, places in Canada, I think that's just wonderful and magical. And it just gives me that permission to keep on writing and just say, right, do what you want. And if it's meant to be, people will hear you. That also gives me a chance as a human being, as a writer to be heard, right? To not be invisible anymore. So I want my characters to be heard. I want Singapore women to have a voice. I want immigrants to be given due recognition of what they go through. So suddenly it becomes this wonderful party that we are all in. Obstacles, I think the obstacles continue. How to take it to the next level? I'm, the first, I'm a first-time writer. I, I made it on some of the bestseller lists. And then you think, how do you, how do you go outside of Alberta? How do you get outside of the country? And, and it's timing. It's, it's what should I be doing? And it's just a big lesson in confusion and not knowing what to do. So I really appreciate, you know, having the opportunity to talk to you and, and hopefully learning and, and giving, getting some guidance and ideas and hints. And I think that that's where the writers come together and they can help each other, right? To grow and to go to the next level. So many opportunities, many obstacles. And as a newbie, I just, get up each day and take a step and go, oh, okay, didn't think of that. Oh, wow, I'm going to be talking to Farzana today. So, And, you know, I would say this, the exact same thing that you just said. And I, I want to say something about, like, the external validation piece. And for a long time, I was like, oh, you know, why do we need so much of that? But I think we do because this is all so public. It's it's not like other jobs that are really happening in a very private sphere. This is such a vulnerable thing that we're doing because it's so public. And so it really does help when on Facebook, your friends say, yay, you know, like it really, really, and when you get a good review, like we, we actually do need that because we are doing this hugely, hugely vulnerable thing. Yes, it's private and it's personal and, and there are no boundaries. And I think that it's important for, if, if I can get one other person to write the way that I have been, you know, supported by other writers, it, it just keeps going, right? Because everyone has a has wonderful story once they start. Yeah, yeah and that, that is our job too, is to to pay it forward, right? We, we've yes. all been helped in our own ways and we have to pay it forward. So yeah. do you want to end on the moon question? That might sure. be a fun end. So what is this moon thing? I know, I don't know. This is that crazy, wonderful, magical opportunity that fell into my lap. I, it's one of, it was one of my going online and seeing people's pieces being sent to the moon and sending mine in. And Samuel Peralta, who is from Toronto, a writer, a physicist, he has a lunar codex program. And when he saw my poem, he, coming from an Asian Filipino background, could recognize the words and, and the meaning and the idea of being an immigrant and an outsider. And it was such wonderful validation to say he gets it. And, mm -hmm. and he was also happy that I was also from Singapore because the Lunar Codex program is a project where he has art, literature, music, and he curates it from all over the world. So he sends them in, you know, little digital uh, batteries or digital and analog to the moon in these capsules, and they're going to be there forever forever up in the moon till someone discovers them. And, and I think someday someone will see all this beautiful music and literature. And he did it during COVID as a way to inspire writers and to inspire the world that, that during hard times and difficult times, look at the beauty that human beings still create and can create. Mm 
Mm -hmm. So I'm so proud to have my poem and my novel going to the moon forever. Yes, the talk about beyond international, right? Exactly. It's something that would never, never, never cross my mind. And that's where the opportunity opportunities fell into place. And this was one magical one that I'm so grateful for. It is magical. Yes. Maybe we should we should end on that beautiful note. Um, if people are trying to find you, what's the best way to find you on social media, for example? I'm on Facebook, I'm on Instagram, I'm on Twitter, and I also have my website and I'll put it in the link. If you just do kellycore.com, you will unfortunately or fortunately be able to find me. And what about you? Yeah, I'm on all of those places and I'm just at Farzana Doctor. I've kept just a very simple (laughs) um, tag there so uh, people can can find me on all the social media. And I also have a farzanadoctor.com website too. Wonderful. Well, thank you. This, this is, I've enjoyed every moment of it and talking to you and I will definitely be keeping an eye on you, watching you, reading your books and, and, you know, learning and growing and sharing. So thank you. Likewise, it's been really fun and let's keep in touch. And I'm looking forward to finishing your book and finding out what happens to Simran. (laughs) Thank you so much. And thank you to Reed Alberta and Writers Guild and to everyone who helped us to spend this amazing hour together. And to Jason and Hadil who have been working in the background to make this happen. Right. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you.